Subscribe to Tripod Talk Radio for conversations with veterinarians, oncologists, rehab therapists, and other experts discussing amputation for dogs and cats. Find more info, helpful care tips, and a free gift at tripods.com slash radio. Next into the tank is an advancement in food technology. On this episode, number 81, of Tripod Talk Radio, Renee speaks with the godfather of pet obesity, Dr. Ernie Ward, about how Wild Earth's new plant-based protein pet food is making the world a better place. Tune in as we debunk the vegan dog food myth and discover what makes Wild Earth so great for people, pets, and the planet. And scratching like a three-legged dog. For any tripod, cat or dog... Why do some vets do things that way? Why? Pet obesity is a serious problem. He's a three-legged dog and he's still pretty good. Hello and thank you for listening. This is Tripod Talk Radio, episode number 81, recorded April 30th, 2019. Today we are talking about a new pet food you'll be hearing a lot more about soon for sure. First, please know that Tripods was not compensated in any way for the production of this episode. We are just passionate about providing the best possible information for pet parents who want to keep their dogs and cats fit and healthy, on three legs or four. Now, Wild Earth is on a mission to create better, safer, and more nutritious pet food that is actually better for the environment, too. Sound like marketing hype? Just wait. We are happy to welcome the avid pet health advocate, Dr. Ernie Ward, back to the program to discuss how pets benefit from the plant-based protein which makes Wild Earth so great. Keep listening as we learn about the benefits of the fungal protein koji and debunk misconceptions about so-called vegan dog food, an all-too-common misnomer for this sustainable alternative to current pet foods containing factory-farmed animal products. You may recognize the name Wild Earth from their appearance on ABC's Shark Tank, where the company landed a substantial investment from Mark Cuban. To learn more and find Wild Earth near you, visit wildearth.com and join me now in welcoming their chief veterinary officer, Dr. Ernie Ward, to Tripod Talk Radio. Thanks for being here, Doc. Oh, it is my pleasure. I, I got to tell you, you know I'm big fans, and it's just an honor to be back with you. Oh, thank you. We've been, we've been wanting to do this for a long time because we keep hearing all of this great stuff about Wild Earth, and um, I'm, I'm thrilled that you took the time today to be here. So let's get started. Um, what what called you to to become involved with Wild Earth, and what exactly do you do for the company? Well, that's a great start. And so, you know, I've been a veterinarian my entire life, so, you know, pushing 30 years or so, uh, and I've always been committed to one single purpose in my practice and really my life, and that is to enhance the well-being and longevity of the pets that I love. So specifically for us, it's dogs and cats. That's why I love the tripods uh, in particular. And so when you start to look at how do you improve well-being and longevity, then you really come quickly to the conclusion that nutrition and diet have a lot to do with that. In fact, you know, many people would argue and many scientists would agree that, hey, it's the fuel that we fill our bellies with or we feed our pets that actually is going to impact your long-term health the most. And so, you know, that's over the years, you know, I've worked closely with obesity. I founded the Association for Pet Obesity Prevention back in 2005. I've written a couple of books about, you know, pet obesity in particular and worked with a lot of, uh, you know, other childhood obesity pro- programs. But what led me to Wild Earth was a series of serendipitous events. And, 
you know, I've been talking about all of these things. I've been a long time, you know, I've been a vegetarian since I left home. Uh, so, you know, for me, uh, periods of vegetarian and veganism, when we had kids, we stopped being vegans for some other reasons. A gynecologist scared the pants off my wife, literally. Uh, and uh, so, you know, but I've, I've never eaten animals since I left home. And uh, so, when, when I met Ryan Bethencourt, who is our, our current CEO, and he's the founder of the company, we met at a conference, a future technology conference, and I was giving a presentation, and he was giving a presentation. We had some shared friends, and he said, hey, I'm thinking about doing this sort of animal-free uh, protein, this clean meat pet food company. Uh, we've got a prototype of a couple of interesting molecules. W- would you be interested in talking with us? And of course, I was like, absolutely. And I checked yeah. him out, and he checked me out, and then that set us on this journey. So that all was the end of 2017. So we've been working really, really hard to find ways using biotech to replace animal proteins in pet foods. And we've already got a treat that's on the market that came out end of last year. And by the fall, we will have a, a dog food. So we're, it's super exciting times. A lot of work, a lot of late nights, but really, really exciting. Oh, wow. Things have been moving so fast. I can't believe you just met him in, in 2017. Um, we saw Ryan on Shark Tank recently, right. and um, we'll try to include a link to the show on, on our podcast uh, blog post about this. But um, yeah, it's super exciting. And I have to admit, what, what called me to Wild Earth was Jim and I are both vegetarians. I've been one since I got out of high school. So right. it's been a long time. Um, however, with all of this talk about um, you know, vegan dog food and things like that. I, I've been leery about feeding anything like that to my own dog, but we'll we'll get into that in a little bit. Right. Um, but first, I want to I want to ask you what. So, what's the the big thing about Wild Earth? I mean, you you met at a future tech conference, and it sounds like it's it, it's Soylent. I mean, what is this stuff? What makes <laughs> it so? What is Koji? Tell me more about it. Right. Well, first of all, there's a, there's a couple of different scientific projects that we quickly got to work on. Uh, and the first, and, and I guess still arguably the most uh, popular and requested, is the story about koji. And koji, quite simply, is an ancient fungus that most of your listeners have already had. If they've ever had sake or miso or bean paste or any of other <laughs> wide variety of Asian delicacies, oh, yeah. koji is actually the secret sauce. It's what gives the, the Asian foods that umami, that savory flavor. Quite frankly, I, I would say maybe even a meaty flavor, but everybody knows it when they taste that, that great you know, soy sauce taste. And uh-huh. so that's koji. And the Japanese perfected this over thousands of years. So basically it was accidentally discovered, depending on whose history books you believe, between six and 9,000 years ago, rice farmers discovered that they had this white frost, which is actually what koji means. And so they found this white frost that would grow on top of rice as they were drying it. And so um, some really brave Japanese rice farmer tasted it one day and said, (laughs) oh my gosh, it tastes fantastic. Well, then over thousands of years, they refined it. In fact, it's almost, I would argue, to the level of like winemaking in France. So like different regions of Japan have like their own little twist on koji. Um, And so that's been fine and good. It's been used as a flavoring agent, right? So for thousands of years, People just said, oh, it makes food taste better. Well, what we looked at was, wait a second, this is a fungus. 
what proteins are actually in this stuff. And we have an amazing chief science officer, Dr. Ron Shigeta, who is of Asian descent, but this guy, you know, lecture, I mean, he was at Princeton and Harvard, I and mean, he's been all over. Uh, he's an amazing food scientist. And he said, I want to do some evaluation and analysis of this fungus. And lo and behold, this is where our story really begins, because as we were looking at these different alternative proteins, koji fell into our lap, almost literally. We found out that it contains all 10 essential amino acids that dogs require, and we were off to the races. So oh, once wow. we found that, and then we started doing fine, you know, further refinements on this testing, and Renee, we found that it has almost twice the density of protein that steak does. That, that cows. Yeah. So suddenly now you realize, wait a second, we may be on to something very, very interesting. Now, we then scaled that out, and we started working on two separate projects. One was, what other fungi are out there, and what other protein profiles do they have? And so we've really kind of now done some very interesting work with some other uh, fungal organisms that, that we'll be talking about publicly in a few months. The second thing is, of course, we, like many companies, have looked at clean meats. So we were the first company to come out with a clean mouse meat, which is going to be a future cat product, which is oh, wow. maybe beyond on what some of the tripods uh, listeners may be listening to are interested in. But if they have a cat, oh, just yeah. know that we're working on solutions that are very, very creative and innovative. But that, that's what Koji is in a short, in a simple answer. It was a flavoring agent. We did more refinement of it. We found out it's packed with protein. And then we said, how can we make this into something like a dog food? Wow. I, that is just mind-blowing that a, a fungus can be good to eat and full of protein. But um, why, why a protein from fungus? Why not just Great come up question. with a clean meat dog food? Great question. And that, that's a really, that's the start of the story. So you could go, okay, look, there's really several different ways to look at this. Plant-based proteins are already well established. So pea proteins, you know, there's several vegetarian diets already for dogs and cats around the world. So why not just use peas, chickpeas, you know, any variety of, mm -hmm. of plant-based, right? So that's one thing. The second thing is what about the clean meat? So, you know, we see these, these, these promises for clean chickens, their cell-based, uh, you know, proteins, right. hamburgers and all these things. So why not go that route? Okay, that's the, and then, so fungus. So the first was, okay, why not just plant-based? Well, I am a big fan, you know, like you, life, you know, literally a lifelong uh, vegetarian vegan. And so we worry about sustainability. When I look at the environmental impact of just farming, as we call them, row crops in the South, you know, like soybeans and corn and others, it's just unsustainable. And over the next 30 years, there's going to be an estimated 10 billion mouths to feed on the planet. We just mm. don't have enough arid land to grow that much food. Okay, so we've really got some serious uh, environmental and, and food crises looming in the very yeah. near future. Okay, so plants just probably aren't going to be sustainable. They still require a lot of effort, a lot of land, a lot of water. There's a lot of side effects to it. So we started looking at bioreactors because remember now, if you're looking at growing bacteria and fungi, you can grow them in these stainless steel sterile tank environments, and so they're very, much more efficient. The second thing is getting back to these cell-based meats. Like, Several technological barriers still exist. And first and foremost, for people you need to understand, it's really expensive. I mean, even the people like yeah. Mosa Meats and Memphis Meats, you know, the people that are at the top of the game when it comes to cell-based proteins, these things are costing $100 a burger still. So the cost is prohibitive for a dog food and a cat food at this time. So even our clean mouse meat that we developed – 
last uh, a year and a half or so ago, it's mm-hmm. just cost. It's just too expensive, Renee. It just just can't be done. So that's why we started looking at fungi because we're like, wait, these things grow like wildfire, literally. I mean, you put them in a bioreactor, and within 72 hours, they oh are fully formed, right? I mean, that, it takes what you know four to six years to grow a cow. We can grow protein in 72 hours, which is why oh. when you start to hear about all of these people that are using bioreactors and fermentators and all that technology, that's why we're doing it because we can do it faster and cheaper. So that's why we focus solely on fungal proteins, bacterial origin proteins. We're still working hard on our clean mouse meats and some other exciting products that are, are going to be coming out in another year. But you know mm-hmm. that just takes longer to get to scale and affordability. Oh, I, thank you for, for explaining that. That is incredible. Now, as far as the types of dogs that can enjoy this, like uh, the treats, oh my gosh, Wyatt has just gone bonkers <laughs> over them. He loves them. And What's really interesting is that he he seems satisfied with just one. I mean, he like he wants more, but at the same time he's he actually like it just seems to pack a lot of taste and satisfaction into it. If I look at him after he's eaten it, he just looks happy. So, Renee, I was just wondering Let, let me Yeah, let me yeah. dig into that because this sure. is the this is the other happy accident. You know, science, I, I think a lot of the breakthroughs that we have are really just accidents that just are fortuitous. I mean, whether it's Edison and penicillin or whomever, you know, back in history. And this is one of those happy accidents. Here we are looking at how do we make more efficient proteins. We stumble on koji, has a great umami flavor profile. But then I, I had a, a potential obstacle because as I was researching this early in our days, I said, wait a second. There's some research that says maybe dogs can't taste umami. Maybe they can't even oh, taste this koji yeah. stuff. But I wasn't convinced because these are old studies. They're quite arguably poorly conducted. And I said, why don't we try? You know, nobody's tried it before. And, Renee, what you're seeing in your dogs, like I see in my dogs and like thousands of other dogs across the country uh, are seeing the same result. Dogs go crazy. They say, wow, this is a flavor I'm not accustomed yeah. to getting. It's unique. And it's, I think, again, it's got this savory, meaty mouth feel. You know, that's what the, the yeah. people call it. And I think dogs just go, I really like this. So it's a fascinating, lucky accident for us. But I do think there's more to the, this flavor profile story. Um, we have some other testing that we've been doing with other uh, fungi, and we've, we've been finding very, very interesting results. Dogs really seem to like this stuff. I Yeah, Wyatt, if, if he could get on the show right now, he would tell you all about it. Um, so, so what about maintaining a healthy weight? Because, you know, all this talk about we're overfeeding right. our dogs and we're giving them too many treats, and right now, you know, while their treats are – our go-to snack, but um, is it going to help maintain a healthy weight if I give him treats every day? Well, first of all, you know the rules on treats. It can't be more than 10% of the total caloric intake. So, you know, if you've got a 20-pound dog out there and you're enjoying our Wild Earth uh, treats, then, you know, that's going to be a couple of treats a day. Maybe if you have a 40 or 50-pound dog, you can four or five treats, but we still have to be very careful with the amount of treats. But this mm-hmm. is also the, the, the happy accident intersection, because when Ryan and I first met, he really didn't fully understand just how passionate I was about pet obesity. You know, he, knew <laughs> I, he knew I was in that, and I was kind of the, the godfather of that, uh, and, you know, but he didn't quite understand. So I said, listen, what I want to do is I want to make a high-protein, high-fiber diet that's relatively low in calories, because I still believe 
Most of the research supports that when you combine higher protein profiles with higher fiber profiles, especially some interesting stuff that, that we're working on with our dog food, then you're going to promote lean muscle mass. And so that's actually what I've been working on really hard. We've got a great team of PhD food scientists at Wild Earth. I mean, we are just stacked with PhDs. I think we've got four or five now full-time PhDs doing nothing wow. but working on a, dog, on a dog food, which is quite remarkable, I think. Awesome. Uh, but so what I'm doing is getting a formulation that is going to have a, the highest, you know, animal-free protein diet ever, ever, and it's going to have wow. these unique fibers. So this is going to help with gut health. So, I mean, we've been working really, really hard. And, and I will say this, Renee, too, it's, it's been really sort of, I don't know, rewarding to, to reach out to, to people with dogs and say, listen, we, we're trying these different things with dog foods, and these don't have animal protein, so they're cruelty-free, and mm-hmm. we need help. We need for you actually to try this with your dog. And it's been amazing, the response. You know, people are lining up saying, how can I help? You know, I'd like to try this. Of course, they have to have their dogs undergo certain, you know, lots of testing and so forth, but it's been really rewarding to see the community, the dog-loving community say, we understand. We're worried about the environment. We're worried about you know, animal welfare. We're worried worried about mm-hmm. the health of our own dog, and they're saying, how can we help? I, I bet Wyatt will be really happy to help, and even Jim over here is happy to help because he actually <laughs> tasted one of the treats after the Shark Tank episode. Yeah. He, he bit into it, and I looked at him, and, and he just kind of went, yeah, pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you know, yes, our, our dog treats are not made for human consumption, so despite right, what, right. what Ryan likes to do, but, but the reality is you do get a, a sense of that umami flavor. Uh, what we've actually done, too, is combine that with some unique uh, flavor profiles. My personal dog's, my my, their favorite is the peanut butter combination with, with the, the koji. That seems to be the one that they really like. But we're, you know, we're getting very creative. And the other thing, too, is that we're trying to, and this is why it's just great to work with a team like at Wild Earth. And, and Dr. Abril Estrada, who is our, our operations you know, head, she, she indulges me. You know, when we say, I want to try something different, she doesn't. You know, she gives me her arguments why or why not, but she actually is going with, you know, with a lot of the crazy ideas that I've only been dreaming about for 30 years, and we're making them a reality, which is super exciting. It, it is very exciting. I can't wait to see what other combinations you come up with. And in the meantime, so Koji is the, the main uh, only protein in Wild Earth right now. Is that correct? That's our, that is our primary proprietary source. So we've, you know, we've done okay. some... Yeah, IP or intellectual property protection around that. So that's, you know, Koji is our go-to. Having said that, um, we are really, you're going to see other fungal proteins because it's not just Koji. That just sort of opened the door and, quite frankly, opened our eyes to a whole, you know, constellation of other fungi. And it's really Uh interesting. I've got a book coming out in the fall, which I hope maybe we can come back and and revisit uh, some of the topics. But but when when you start to look at evolutionary biology, which is where I started going back, once we discovered Koji had all 10 essential amino acids that dogs possess, I asked a very cogent question, which was why? Why would fungi have any protein? And if so, why would they have certain protein profiles. And you really mm-hmm. quickly understand that these proteins, these amino acids have been preserved throughout, you know, millennia. And that means that the, the organisms that, you know, are at the very bottom of the food chain, like algaes, like fungi, like bacteria, we don't like to think of those as being food sources, but they actually are for many, many organisms. They're preserved because that's what evolution built upon. Do you understand? Does that make that's sense? Totally like, those are the, right. 
So, so it's kind of like we're going right down to the foundation of nutrition. Yeah. This is where it all originated, and that's what's really exciting because, you know, the other thing, too, uh, that we talk about a lot in the book, there, there's something called ingredient bias that a lot of people have. So immediately some of the listeners today are like, I ain't feeding my dog no fungus, fungal proteins, what the heck is that? <laughs> And I totally get it, because based on our experience as Westerners, as North Americans, we've just never been exposed. So first of all, the Asians are like, yeah, we get it. We eat all kind of mushrooms and truffles and all kind of fungi. We're used to it. So their, their flavor experience is different. Their food experience is different. But we have this bias towards certain ingredients that we aren't familiar mm-hmm. with. And so this is part of that uh, unwrapping this dilemma, because now we're saying, okay, look, the first thing we have to do is overcome this instant knee-jerk, gross-out ick factor, right? Feed my dog right. fungus. What the heck is that? And then you start to say, wait a second, this is no different than feeding, you know, a chicken or a cow. You know, it's just another protein source. We really have to, we have to redefine pet nutrition in terms of nutrients, not ingredients. And that's a really important thing because our bodies, as soon as you take a bite of that chicken breast, your body doesn't really care where that protein originated. It breaks it down instantly into the amino acid building blocks. So you see, our bodies are agnostic when it comes to these protein sources. It's our cerebellums, our, our cerebrum, sorry, yes. that are actually going, wait a second, I only want chicken on my plate. I can't imagine anything else. And, and this is why it's such a it's an exciting time, Renee, as both of us as longtime vegetarian vegans, because suddenly now, you know, we're going to have an entirely, you know, I, I can eat a burger. If you haven't had an Impossible Burger or Beyond Burger <laughs> out there, you need to try it because, you know, we, you and I grew up on these really bland veggie terrible, burgers, and now suddenly terrible. it's like, yep. now they're amazing. So it's, it's a really exciting time, and it's, we're only on the cusp of it. I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, you mentioned about the, the nu- nutrient bias. And when that vegetarian product, corn, first came out, um, right. that's made from some type of fungus. I have to admit, to this day, I am still pretty biased about trying it. But now I think I might go pick some up at the grocery store because you're right. I've just been mentally biased against it. But um, I don't know. Have you tasted it? What's it like? (laughs) I have. And I'm going to tell you, so corn was developed after World War II by an amazing food scientist who realized quickly that food scarcity that was occurring in Britain because they got bombed, you know. So he wanted to find a sustainable source for this. Um, Despite the great story and all this, it still is not a great tasting product. I'm sorry, corn. I'm (laughs) sorry. They've gotten a lot better. But this is why, you know, people having people on our team like Dr. Ron Shigeta, I mean, this guy is like, he's a super foodie. And, and so yeah. what, what has happened with Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger and Mosa and Memphis Meats, all those companies, is finally food scientists said, how do we make this stuff not only sustainable and good for the environment, but taste great? And that's where we are today. So corn, great start, not right. the best taste. Today's uh, alternative proteins taste great. Yeah, miles ahead for sure. And, you know, this all kind of leads into that that really controversial discussion about um, the skeptics out there who see vegan dogs when they look at a product that does not have, quote unquote, real meat in it. Um, what do you say to those skeptics? And, and what do you, how can we just be so sure that this diet is going to give them the same level of nutrients that are found in all of the commercial pet foods out there, other than the uh, amino acids? What else makes this the right product for, uh, for our dogs? 
Right. Great, great question. And first of all, I remember that all pet foods, just like our own diets, are a combination of many ingredients and nutrients. So it's not just that you're feeding, you know, a fungal protein. That's just, it's in a sense, just replacing the chicken or the beef or the fish, you know, or the, or the pork. That's, that's mm-hmm. all that is. It's just a protein substitution. So we still pack in all the other vegetables and other vitamins and minerals, all that stuff. So you can definitely be assured that you're getting the proper nutrition because these are tested. You know, there's all kind of feeding tests and quality analysis that go beyond, you know, go behind rather any pet food before it comes out. So the nutrition aspect is really the easy part because we can show you, you know, qualitatively what's in the food. I think the harder thing is when people start to use words like vegan. And those are emotionally charged. They have a wide variety of meanings based on the context and experience of the individual. And, and I would say, you know, even though my dogs don't and haven't eaten animal proteins, um, they're not vegan. They are just dogs that eat plant-based diet. And, you know, we think they're, I mean, they're super lean, super healthy. You know, one of them is getting a little older, but he is in super fit shape. But my point is that veganism really is an ideology. It's a belief system, and it's wrapped up in politics and, you know, all, all sorts of other things. It's not a diet. And I think mm-hmm. that's where I start to draw the line for terminology. Like, I consider what we're doing at Wild Earth, we're a plant-based pet food company. Right? So we're using alternative proteins, right? Uh, we're not using animals. We're not, you know, we're very cognizant of, of the environment. So we're looking for solutions to those problems. So I think the first thing we have to do is sort of be willing to disconnect from the terms that are currently, you know, so contentious and get back to the roots of nutrition. Get back to nutrients, not ingredients. Get back to what can we do that's different? Because let's face it, we've been making the same dog food since James Spratt invented, you know, the, the milk bone dog biscuits way back, you know? I mean, so nothing has changed until now. And now suddenly we're going, wait a second, why did we stop at protein sources could only come from a chicken, a cow? a pig or a fish why have right. we eliminated all this other stuff so that's that's really where we're going at it and we know also that we aren't forcing anybody to try this we're not forcing anybody to to even consider this what we're saying is for people that are worried about the environment which i think we all should be for people Absolutely. that are concerned about sustainability moving forward like how can we feed 10 billion people over the next 30 years and if they are concerned about animal welfare remember 99.5 percent of all the animals that people eat or the milks that they get comes from factory farms in the United States. This is an indisputable fact. And so, you know, we had to say, how, how can we do better for welfare? So whatever those touch points are, that's what we are providing solutions for. Yay! <laughs> I just, I'm so excited about this. It well, just... Renee, I, I'll, t- I'll tell you, two things really solidified I guess it created more of an urgency for me. There were two reports. One came out in 2017 from UCLA that showed that, hey, pet food is now a major contributor to these greenhouse gas emissions and environmental or climatological change. And so in UCLA, they, they finally, somebody really did some, they did some amazing research. It's a big team of researchers that put this together. But they found that about 25% of all the meat, all the animal meat, currently consumed in the United States is consumed by our dogs and cats. That's a quarter. So suddenly now over a third of the greenhouse gas emissions are a direct result from pet foods. So we can no longer eliminate or omit or forget about the contribution of pet foods to climate change. We are a major part of the story. And so I said, wait a second, how can I, I I, want to be a part of the solution. I'm not going to stand by anymore. I can't. 
you know, I just felt compelled to. The second uh, study came out last year, and it started saying, uh, well, this was by the U.S. government. It said, we have about 12 years to get our act together, or we're going to be at an irreversible tipping point when it comes to climate change. And yeah. this is the United States Climate Report. And they, this is the one that came out on Black Friday last year at Thanksgiving. Right. They kind of buried it. Great timing. But, but, yeah, great timing for probably a, a deliberate purpose. But, yep. but again, we don't, we don't have the luxury of time anymore. So for me as a veterinarian, I can't, you know, I, I can't go out there and change the human food system. But I can try with where I have some influence and expertise, and that's with pet foods and pets that I love. So I want my pets to be a part of the solution for our future, for my children's future, and hopefully their children's future, rather than a part of the problem. I feel exactly the same way. You know, as a as a vegetarian, I've I've put my my practice into my own life, but when it comes to buying Wyatt's food, I've always just felt so conflicted. And yep. yet I didn't want to buy into the entire vegan dog food thing because it just didn't feel right to me. I guess I just didn't know right. enough about it, but now that I understand that it's not about where the protein comes from, but just how it's put together and, and who's making it. And I mean, I just, I'm loving what you guys are doing. I am so excited. And right now, Wild Earth is only on, uh, available on the internet. Is that correct? Well, yeah, primarily we're on the internet. Now we have some okay. uh, distributorships. So there are select pet food stores all across the country, uh, primarily on the West Coast where we're located. Oh, in San Francisco. okay. So, so lots of pet stores out here, you know, carry it. So that's, that's one thing. But we are, we are expanding our distribution. Again, you know, we just started this company a year and a half ago, yeah, and we've been cool. very, very fortunate. The reception has been overwhelming. But, yeah, so we're growing it out. Uh, the pet food that we have will be in, you know, in the fall. And, again, you'll mm-hmm. see that at certain, um, you know, select pet retailers, as well as we have, you know, home delivery and all that sort of stuff. So it's really exciting. But, but Renee, let me just touch back on probably the most important part of the discussion we've had all day. And, and the, I, I've written about this exhaustively, and I cover it really in depth in, in the book. And we call this what you've experienced and what thousands and thousands of others like you experience and myself. We call that ethical feeding friction. The fact that vegans and vegetarians feel very guilty every time they open a bag of traditional dog and cat food, but (laughs) they don't feel like there's a solution. They feel like somehow they're depriving their dog. They feel like somehow this would be nutritionally inadequate. And that's just not the case. The science doesn't support that anymore. And there are listeners that will completely disagree with this, and that's okay. We're fine. You know, we, we can have disagreements on this. But the science is pretty solid on nutrients, not ingredients. And that's where people need yeah. to understand you know, that, that there's, there's no magic to uh, a dead cow. You know, there's, there's nothing in there. It's packed with amino acids, minerals, and vitamins. And, and if you break it down into those constituent parts, then you suddenly realize, well, wait a second, there's other places to get those amino acids. In fact, pet foods already do this by adding in things like methionine, cysteine, taurine, all those, those ingredients, those amino acids you hear about with, you know, the heart disease. You know, so we're already adding this stuff back in. What we mm-hmm. just said was, can we find it in another place that's cruelty-free, that's sustainable and environmentally friendly? And you guys have found it, and I am thrilled. I can't wait for the food to come out so that I can just change Wyatt's diet over to it. I'm, I'm super excited. And in the fall, that co- coincides with your book that's coming out. Can you tell us just a little bit more about that? 
Yeah, yeah. So the book really is an exploration in this entire clean pet food movement, as I describe it. And I, I co-wrote it with a wonderful, wonderful team. Uh, I have an animal ethicist friend of mine, Alice Oven from the UK, who's really one of those young, bright voices that, you know, she's really, uh, she's mostly concerned about animal welfare. So it was really nice to get a, an ethicist perspective on my ideas. And we really blended together and meshed. And of course, our CEO, Ryan Bethencourt from Wild Earth, also contributes to the book. And, and we share a lot of stories. Uh, the book is really exciting because we interviewed all of the major clean meat companies in the U.S. right now. So we wanted to look at the human movement. What's going on there? Let's talk to the people who started the movement. Let's start to the people who are doing the greatest advancements. And then let's twist that and show how that's going to be applied to the, to the pet food world, which is what we're doing. We're a small part. But right now, you know, Renee, there's only a, a handful of these companies that are daring to do this. And, and it's early days. And, you know, we're certainly getting a lot of things right, but we're also learning a lot you know, by mm-hmm. making mistakes. And so as we move forward and the science gets more and more refined, it's just the future is really bright if we will embrace it. And I can tell you that, you know, what's also nice about our company is to, to have this strong sort of veterinary presence, you know, that's not often the case at a lot of pet food companies. You know, it's a lot of times right. it's marketing and, you know, it's, it's big business. So it's nice to be a part of a startup community where first and foremost, you know, everything kind of gets run by me as far as formulations and and nutrients and ingredient sourcing and all that stuff. So it's kind of exciting, you know, uh, but at at the same time, you know, I I just feel desperate because, you know, I'm watching my kids who are in high school and about to go off to college, and I just worry about the future. Like, what is the future that my generation, Generation X, is leaving behind? And, you know, millennials now, you know, they, they are very much into pet pets and pet foods. In fact, you probably saw the data. Uh, Dogs and cats in the U.S. now outnumber children under the age of 18 by two to one. Wow. So so it is significant what we pour in those bowls, and I want to make sure that that bowl is supporting the future and it's not part of the destruction of our environment. We are so grateful for the work that you're doing there, Dr. Ward. Thank you so much. We're going to do whatever we can to help get the word out about your work with Wild Earth and everything that's coming down the pipeline with this new revolution because we we all want to help the planet and save our future. It's, it's uh, starting with us right here. Right, so right. thank you so much for being here today. Oh, my pleasure. And again, you know, I love what you guys are doing. You know how... How big a fans I am of the tripod community. I mean, what you guys do, saving lives and enhancing the well-being and longevity of these animals that often are just cast aside. You know how much I appreciate and love and respect that. Oh, thank you. Well, we'll definitely have you back. Yes, thank you so much, Dr. Ward. And best wishes for the future of Wild Earth. I know Wyatt sure loves his good protein treats, and we can't wait to try the kibble. Listeners can learn more about the science behind its plant-based protein at wildearth.com. Discover more nutrition tips, helpful gear, and many other resources for happy, healthy three-legged dogs and cats in the blogs and forums at tripods.com. Thank you for tuning in. Subscribe to Tripod Talk Radio for more pet amputation tips from experts. And claim your free gift just for listeners at downloads.tripods.com slash podcast.